to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my main man and co-host, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you this evening? Oh, I'm feeling good tonight, Foltz. How are you? Doing. I, I feel good. Uh, everything's good. I, I can't complain. I'm just excited about tonight. Um, funny thing, uh, interesting thing that I came across uh, this week. I was looking uh, around at like you know the past we've been talking about the area 51 and things of that nature um came across this article today that i thought it was pretty funny uh area 51 raid the the u.s military apologizes for a tweet about stealth bombing millennials it said the u.s military has apologized over a tweet saying that it would fight millennials with stealth bombers if they attempted to enter area 51 saying it in no way reflects their stance that's crazy that is really crazy i mean i just think that adds more to the mystery too because a bunch of millennials or whoever i'm sure there was people of all different generations there but you had to you were going to bust out the stealth bombers that's the thing i think that the u.s government was so like they thought there was like a little revolt like a little counterculture like rising up to the point where they thought maybe their rifles weren't going to protect them there was two and a half million people that signed up for it yeah um what do you think would have happened if two and a half million i mean would would the would the american people or the people of the world actually have to accept that the united states government killed two and a half million people because they stormed this land that was secret military and used the the stealth bomber yeah i mean which you would use in the event of a, a nuke right i don't know i guess who knows they just luckily nothing happened i mean this story now i think is going to be officially behind us um, it just goes to show you how protected roswell is yeah i mean obviously they were going to go at any cost to, to stop anybody but pretty much at any cost they were just going to stop that the public and it could have been like woodstock it could have been you know carload after carload of people showing up just rushing this place and to the point where they couldn't protect it anymore yeah i mean it, it certainly would have been interesting i mean uh, i can't lie and say there's not a side of my brain that wasn't like I hope they go for it. I want to know what's in <laughs> yeah. there. Just to see what would go down. I mean, now, <laughs> of course, it'd feel terrible if all these people got killed that went for it. But, uh, yeah, I secretly was kind of being like, I, I honestly thought someone's going to go for it. But uh, I don't know. But speaking of, uh, of Area 51, and that was a fun month. The month of September was fun, building up to Area 51 and all that. So... But like I said, that story is behind us. I just wanted to uh, tell a story about the government, you know, issuing their apology for threatening to stealth bomb all the millennials. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, as uh, as common as uh, Area Fifty One is, and the Roswell story, there's actually a story uh, that some of you may have heard of or are familiar with. Uh, called the uh, the Falcon Lake incident. Now, some people have said that uh, it's more important and it has more evidence behind it than uh, than Roswell. So uh, that's a big that's a bold statement. That is a bold statement. Um, but uh, from the from the homework that that we've done on this case, uh, we, we we think that that statement may have something here. 
So uh, we're going to kick it off uh, without further ado and jump into it. Steve, you want to kick us off with Falcon Lake? Absolutely, man. Falcon Lake incident is Canada's best documented UFO case, even 50 years later. Stefan Michelak can still vividly remember when his dad came home. Oh, no, Stan. Stan is his son. Stefan is the dad. Stan is the son. Yeah, uh, I think what the son of the man involved in the famous Manitoba UFO case has written a book about an ongoing mystery. The Stefan Michelak was treated at a hospital for burns to his chest stomach that were later turned into raised sores on a grid-like pattern. Right, right, right. So Stan Michelak can still vividly remember when his dad came home sick and injured after something happened in the Falcon Lake woods in Manitoba on the May long weekend in 1967. So it was something that put his family life into upheaval and remains one of the world's best known UFO encounters. Here we go. I recalled seeing him in bed. He didn't look good at all. He looked pale and haggard, said Michelak, who was nine years old at the time and was allowed to see his father for a couple of minutes on the day after what would soon become known as the Falcon Lake incident. Then there was the smell, he said. Yeah. When I walked into the bedroom, there was a huge stink in the room, like a real horrible aroma of sulfur and burnt motor. It was all around and it was coming out of his pores. It was bad, said Michelak, who co-authored a book, When They Appeared, with Winnipeg UFO researcher Chris Rutkowski. Interesting. I was afraid. My dad had been injured, and I didn't know anything about it, Michelak told CBC News in recalling that Saturday 50 years earlier. Within a couple of days, however, not only did he know more, so did much of the public. The story about his dad being burned by a UFO ran in the Winnipeg Tribune newspaper, and that's when everything pretty much hit the fan, Michelak said. Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit about the encounter. Now, Stefan Michelak was an industrial mechanic by trade and an amateur geologist who liked to venture into the wilderness around Falcon Lake, about 150 kilometers east of Winnipeg, to prospect for quartz and silver. He had staked some claims that prior the prior year he had set out on the May long weekend in 1967 to just do some exploring. On May 20th, 1967, Stefan was near a vine of quartz along the Precambrian Shield in an area when the 51-year-old was startled by a gaggle of nearby geese that erupted into clattering of honks. A grid of dots can be seen on Stefan Michelak's burnt shirt. According to his accounts, as reporters in the newspaper at the time, and since repeated in books, magazines, and on TV shows like Unsolved Mysteries, Stefan looked up and saw two cigar-shaped objects with reddish glow hovering about 45 meters away. One descended, according to Stefan's account, landing on a flat section of rock and taking on more of a disc shape. The other remained in the air for a few minutes before flying off. Believing it to be a secret U.S. military experimental craft, Stefan sent back and sketched it over the next half hour. Then he decided to approach, later recalling the warm air, smell of sulfur as he got closer, as well as a whirling sound of motors and hissing of air. 
He also noted a door open on the side with bright lights inside and said he heard voices muffled by the sounds from the craft. He said he called out, offering mechanical help to the quote-unquote Yankee boys if they needed it. The voices went quiet but did not answer. So Stefan tried in his native Polish, then in Russian, and finally in German. Only the whirl and hiss of the aircraft responded. He claims he went closer and noted the smooth metal on the ship with no seams. He then looked into the bright doorway, pulling on the welding goggles he used to protect his eyes while chipping at the rocks during prospecting. Inside, Stefan saw light beams and panels of various colored flashlights, but could not see anyone or any living thing. When he stepped away, three panels slid across the door, opening and sealed it. He reached to touch the craft, which he said melted the fingertips of his glove that he was wearing. The craft then began to turn counterclockwise, and Stefan says he noticed a panel that contained a grid of holes. Shortly afterwards, he stuck. <clears throat> he was struck in the chest by a blast of air or gas that pushed him forward and set his shirt and cap on fire. He ripped away the burning garments as the craft lifted off and flew away. Disoriented and nauseous, Stefan stumbled through the forest and vomited. He eventually made his way back to his motel room in Falcon Lake and then caught a bus back to Winnipeg. He was treated at the hospital for burns to his chest and stomach that later turned into raised sores on a grid-like pattern, and for weeks afterwards, he suffered from diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, and weight loss. Wow, that's pretty incredible right there. Yeah, imagine being on that bus and... Stefan stumbles into the bus and he's all sick from well and and on top of that we actually have pictures of him from when he's in the hospital or at his home where these grid-like patterns are burnt into his chest or fried into it somehow so we'll put that bump on our social media yeah he looked like he was in pretty bad shape there right why don't you take this next section so once the story was out the royal canadian mounted police the air force the media and various government agencies and hordes of gawking members of the public descended on the Michelac's small River Heights bungalow in Winnipeg. That's who Michelac refers to in the title of the book. Those endless visitors and phone calls, the media and people camping on the lawn, the people who would follow Michelac to school one day, peppering him with questions. It just flipped our lives over, he said. It took several years before it finally died down. After that, and until the day he died in 1999 at the age of 83, Stefan believed he never should have said a thing, Michelak said. But at the time, he felt it was his duty. He wanted others, if they were to see the same thing, to avoid it and not get hurt. In Poland, before Stefan moved his family to Canada, he was a military policeman with a set of moral guidelines that he lived by. That is, if, if something happened, it should be reported. In addition to constant probing from authorities, the family endured condemnation and criticism in the public. Stefan's sanity was questioned and Michelak was bullied in school. Though he wished he hadn't said anything, Stefan never backed away from the story either. He also never claimed to have seen aliens and still considered it a military secret craft. If you asked him what he saw, he would describe it in intimate detail, but he would never say, 
oh, it was definitely extraterrestrials, because there was no hard evidence to prove that. He might ask, what do you think I saw? But right up until he died, his story never changed, not one iota. Nothing about it or how he told it. In all those years since, and with some 300 pages of documentation on the encounter, there's nothing so far that has flawed his story. So what does he think? <clears throat> That's crazy. I mean, I have to say, before before moving forward, that if I had the encounter that he did, I would tell my story. I mean, there's got to be people out there that believe you. I mean, if, as long as your family supports you, anybody can call and say whatever you want. I mean, okay, well, then, then how did you get those burns? Explain it. And, you know, it's just another story that probably just gets swept under the rug. But anybody whose story doesn't falter in 50 years and doesn't change in the slightest, then it's, it's, I have to assume it's the truth. Because a fallacy or a made-up story about seeing this UFO, it would have changed over time. More detail would have come out. Now, granted, as we're going to cover here tonight, he was, he, he was interviewed multiple times by different people, and he has said, different accounts of what have happened that day but in his full story as a collective he's never faltered from it so we'll get back into it and you can tell when someone's lying like you can tell you hear a story and you can tell immediately like you're in the room and you're like that's that's not a that's not a true story well and you always have to ask yourself what would this person have to gain first of all nothing because it made him sick he was just trying to tell the the truth about what happened to him he didn't get any money it didn't give him fame yeah he's got this story but i'm sure his family would rather have him alive than uh, this story about falcon lake right and it was kind of his way to warn other people so well I, sure i mean if you see something unbelievable uh, tell people about it. I mean, some people are going to, if, if it's the truth and you can describe what you saw in great detail and you have physical evidence on your body, well, you got to tell somebody. What are you going to say? I don't know what happened. Tell somebody. Let's get the story. Tell us. We'll cover it. Tell Subtle Beast. Yeah, we totally will. Okay, where are we at? So, Mishlak says, I'm not so close-minded that I can't entertain the possibility that it was out otherly worldly i can't discount that but without specific evidence to show me that it is i just don't know what i can tell you is that i'm an aviation fanatic a huge aviation buff and i'm very familiar with how aviation technology has advanced in the past 50 years and there was nothing even close to that in the works anywhere at that time see i like that a lot too because he doesn't just say, look, I, I think it's extraterrestrials. As a matter of fact, he was leaning towards more you know, deep state in, in, in the back-engineered crafts. And to be completely honest, if, if you've seen, seen the great documentary that Stephen Greer put out called Unacknowledged, where these guys that used to work in deep state government are now talking about the uh, the fake alien attack, you know, to rally the uh, the people of the world together to have one united front against the aliens, which doesn't exist. That they have these craft that they could launch at any time, fly over these cities, huge triangles that everybody would believe. I mean, it, they said there's a hundred percent possibility that everybody on earth would believe that this is an extraterrestrial invasion so having said that if this guy saw one of these back engineered ones back then i mean 
at least he's being honest. He's not saying, oh, it's this, but it possibly could have been. It could have been E.T., but it could have been back engineered because that's how good they look. And in 67, it was in full swing. Sure. I mean, it's 20 years after Roswell. So they had plenty of you know, opportunity to create such a ship. I mean, look at the Phoenix Lights. Like, the, there's Definitely. plenty of opportunity. Perfect example for the government to have created something that would be believable. As and as we get into this and we talk more about this, uh, there's a couple of things that kind of stand out, like the radiation. But let's get back into it, folks. Okay. So, the case was investigated intensely by a number of levels of government, and the official conclusion, even from the United States Air Force, was that the case was unexplained. The Falcon Lake incident is possibly Canada's best documented UFO case. It even beats Roswell, the alleged flying disc that landed in New Mexico in 1947, because the United States still doesn't recognize that anything happened in Roswell out of the ordinary. Now, items were later retrieved from the encounter site, including Stefan's glove and a shirt and some tools, which were subjected to extensive analysis at the RCMP crime lab. No one could determine what caused the burns. At the landing site was a circle, about 15 feet in diameter, devoid of the moss and the vegetation growing in the other areas of the same rock outcropping. Soil samples, along with samples of clothing, were tested and deemed to be highly radioactive. So, so were pieces of metal that were chipped out of the cracks and in the rock about a year after the incident. The metal had somehow melted into the cracks. Many of the items have been since lost, and they were transferred through various authorities and agencies. However, Rutkowski and Michelak still have one of the pieces of metal which remains radioactive. Still sick in 1968, with recurrences of the burns showing up on his chest and suffering from blackouts, Stefan went on to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Doctors did a thorough investigation and even sent him to the psychiatrist, who came back with the report that this is a fellow who's very pragmatic, very down-to-earth, pardon the pun, and does not make up stories. If Dad hoaxed this, remember, we're talking about a blue-collar industrial mechanic. If he hoaxed it, and then he was a freaking genius, said Michalik. Right, man. I mean, first of all, they're, they have in their possession a piece of the radioactive metal. Right. They have the piece of radioactive. It's still radioactive to this day. They went out to the site, and they found those, those blanding gear, is what I would assume it, those circles were that were 15 feet in diameter. The site tested positive for radioactivity. His tools did. Some of his clothes did. But there's nothing to report there. Well, then if I was the local people of that town, I'd be like, well, if this incident didn't take place, well, where's all this radioactivity coming from? And we need to get rid of it. And I don't want it around here because I don't want to end up, you know, looking like this guy or worse. I don't know. And, and the metal that was chipped out of those cracks got, it was a year after the incident, which would still be radioactive because once something's radioactive, it's radioactive for a long time. Right. And they should probably get rid of the piece of metal that they kept. Nobody needs something that's radioactive in their house. I'm sure. I'm sure it's secure, but I mean, I'm sure that nobody could possibly get to it. It's like the uh, the infamous piece of uh, Element 115 Unumpentium that uh, Bob Lazar had once stated that he got out of uh, S4, and while shooting the documentary that he just recently did, 
they were talking about it and before they got too into it they were like oh we better bury our phones in the ground before we have this conversation about whether or not he got it out and they never aired the they didn't put the on what they discussed on whether he got it out or not but the very next day his house was raided by the fbi they said they were searching for purchase orders for something he was like well why would they just ask me because i could just bring them up so they were listening through their phones on what they're about to talk about and they and they knew he had something radioactive. Yeah, well, he knew that. The, well, unum pentium is the, is the fuel for some of the ET crafts. Jeez, I mean, you bring that out in the public, and people are going to be like, and it's stable. I mean, that's crazy. Now, let's see. Now here we're going to go into we're going to we're going to obviously keep continuing with the Falcon Lake, but uh, it go, it goes more in depth. Now Michelac was searching for minerals along Falcon Lake, eighty miles east of Winnipeg, Manitoba. May 20th, 1967, when he heard the cackling of geese. Looking up into the early afternoon sky, he saw two glowing, oval-shaped objects on a steep, swift descent. One abruptly stopped in its downward flight, while the other continued, landing on a flat rock, outcropping 160 feet away. Michelac carefully approached the strange craft, which looked like a bowl with a dome on top. 40 feet wide, 15 feet high, it emitted a humming sound and a sulfur stench. On the bottom half, just below the rim of the bowl, was a door-like opening from which muffled voices emanated. They sounded like humans, he reported. I was able to make out two distinct voices, one with a higher pitch than the other. Thinking he was dealing with terrestrial craft, he addressed the speakers in several languages, asking if he could help. He got no answer. He poked his head through the opening into the interior, seeing only a maze of lights. At that moment, three panel doors slid across and sealed the opening. As Michelac stepped back, he touched the vehicle's exterior. It was so hot that it burned his gloves. Suddenly, the object rose, expelling hot air through a grid-like vent and causing Michelac's shirt to erupt into flames. An attack of nausea overtook him. When doctors examined Michelac in a Winnipeg hospital a few hours later, they noted a dramatic burn pattern all across his chest, exactly like the grid Michelac had described on the the UFO's underside. Michelac's health problems continued and brought him to the Minnesota Mayo Clinic the next year. Investigations by the official and civilian bodies uncovered no evidence of a UFO hoax. As late as 1975, a member of the Canadian Parliament complained that the government had not released its findings. Well, that's good. They got the you got people screaming. There's the official story is not being let out here. You know what's the deal? Yeah, that was eight years later. So, uh, I mean, I I believe the story. I mean, I I don't see and like and like they said. I mean, there is really m- more quote-unquote hard proof here than there was with the roswell incident other than people's testimony that had claimed to have been there i mean this guy's got burns on i mean yeah i mean he was definitely suffering from like a radioactive sickness from being exposed totally totally for a long time and then when he took the royal canadian mounted police back and was able to retrieve the hat and gloves and some of the items from around there, it proved that he had been there and that the site was radioactive. Right. And we're going to we're gonna go a little bit in deeper here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about before the incident and the incident? So, a little history. Before the incident, Michelac was a resident of Winnipeg, Canada, but had taken a short vacation in the White Shell Provincial Park. 
He was quite familiar with the area, having prospected there on a number of occasions. He had been told that there were veins of quartz to be found near Falcon Lake. He was up early on May 19th, leaving the hotel at 5.30 a.m. Around 9 a.m., he found a vein of the precious material. And around 11 a.m., he stopped for a lunch break and then soon resumed his digging. So that was kind of like the setup for his day that day. Yeah, that's why he was going out there. He was trying to you know, get some riches. Then the incident occurred. Shortly after 12 p.m., Michelak's concentration was disturbed by a noise similar to Geese's grunts. When he looked up, he spotted two cigar-shaped objects, which were red and brilliant as fire. They descended down at a 45-degree angle, as calculated by Michelak. He also noticed that the closer they came, the more oval they became. One of the objects stopped in midair, while the other one landed on a big rock 160 feet away from him. After some moments, the object floating above Michelak changed its color to gray and then flew directly west, disappearing through some clouds. The landed object also changed its color to gray and then to a color similar to an incandescent stainless steel, which we've talked about before. Sure. I mean, the the the, diff, the different colors could have been uh, the different energies of the craft, the, the propulsion could be whatever. But I mean, as far as the, being stainless steel and being completely seamless, I mean, yeah, we've talked about that many times. Um, Stephen Greer said that that's probably one of the best ways if you see a, a cylinder craft like that. If it's seamless, it's probably extraterrestrial. If you can see seams, it's probably man-made. Right. We don't have the technology to make them seamless. Right. Because Greer has said that the technology, from what he's been, from what he's aware of, that they don't they don't build craft. I think we've talked about this well probably way back in season one, but uh, that uh, what he said that he believes in what he's been told is that they basically have like a conscious three D printer. I mean, they're probably millions, if not billions, of more years advanced than we are. They think it, and then it just materializes, and that's why that it has no seams because it was never really constructed. It was made from thought in a in a 3D printer that we can't wrap our mind around. That's probably why we use 3D printer. But and it probably has a less like drag to go through space with. Well, yeah, and that and that's a misconception of um. Uh, a misconception of some of the uh, cylinder craft is that they're flying through space and space time, like just upright, where like the, the like where you picture the people sitting, like the, the the teacup on top. It's from from the research that we've done here at Subtle Beast. The craft actually turns itself on its belly because the um, from what Bob Lazar has said is that that's the way that it 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 maneuvers through space and time. It's got uh, different valves on the bottom for the different types of propulsion and the different speeds through space-time. So it has to turn on its side or turn on its belly and fly belly forward through space-time. Yeah, it's amazing because you would think that it would fly with the least amount of drag, but with the with its belly showing, it would actually be able to catch probably the most amount of energy from stars and suns and well so yeah forth. and not only that it's it's distorting space time and it's creating this shield or force field around you if you will so there is no inertia so you feel nothing regardless of how fast you're going wow yeah that's amazing so 
From the interior opening of this object, some violet light rays were emitted. As Michelak was using special glasses to examine the quartz, the rays did not affect him. The object had a sulfurous smell and a humming noise. Half an hour passed, and Michelak still was observing the spaceship. Suddenly, a door opened, and he could see that the interior of the UFO was very illuminated. He approached some meters and heard some voices coming from inside the ship. Believing that the object was an experimental flying object, he tried to make contact first in English. As no answers were given, he tried other languages in vain. Nervous, he walked up to the opening, and he saw a panel and some lights inside the ship. He didn't see anybody, so he waited, and suddenly the door closed. Despite the surprise, he discovered a colorful glass around the UFO. It was very well conserved, with no cracks. He attempted to touch it, but his glove simply melted, the heat hurting his hand through the glove's protection. Quietly, a metallic box full of holes got off the UFO, what seemed to be a grid-like exhaust vent. A steamy explosion occurred, and some kind of gas was expelled in his direction. Immediately, his clothes started to burn. As the object flew after the other one, Michelak was left behind, desperately trying to extinguish the fire. So that's a good account. Yeah, I mean, we've heard... We've heard this, we've just explained like his situation almost like three different ways from like three different perspectives of when he, when he's told it, um, his story does get told, like we said, it doesn't change over 50 years when it's told collectively. We just wanted to share a couple different, uh, stories and different views that he has shared with others. Um, now after the incident, once the fire was extinguished, Michelak felt pain and sickness and noticed a metallic odor from the, from the inside of his body, like the smell of something electric that is burning. He tried to go to the motel, but he stopped several times, feeling sick. He was later treated upon arrival at the hospital. He initially claimed the burns were caused by airplane exhaust. Michelak's family physician, R.D. Ottaway, reported that Michelak was dazed and confused, but rational. Ottaway further reported hair loss and a series of raised oval-shaped sores on Michelak's chest and abdomen in the grid-like pattern, similar to first-degree burn. The nature of these burns remained difficult to explain. Health problems plagued Michelak for several months, including lack of appetite, weight loss, swelling, and fainting spells. A Mayo Clinic psychiatrist stated that Michelak was free of significant mental or emotional illness. Amazing. Now... By late June 1967, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had taken an interest in Michelak's claims. They could not identify the site on their own, and on June 1st, they brought Michelak with them. However, Michelak could not locate the site, which raised further doubts regarding this claim. Now, the RCMP also confirmed that Michelak had consumed multiple bottles of beer the night before the sighting. Now, before we finish up here, I just want to say that... Uh, me and Steve were talking about this during pre-show and while we were making this show. Anybody that's working out there, out in outdoors, and he's out there panning for whatever elements that he wants to get or might even been camping out there. I mean, how many people have gone out camping in the middle of nowhere? Eh, not a couple beers, but still, you're pretty aware of everything that's going on. Right. This guy, it said that he had taken vacation to go look for this quartz. 
I mean, you're relaxing. You're going out hiking, looking for quartz. Yeah, I mean, I've had a few beers in my day, and I'd have to say that if I had two or three beers, I'd even venture to say if I had 12 and this incident happened, I wouldn't be like, wow, I guess I was drunk. I guess I didn't see the UFO, and maybe these burns came. Maybe I fell in the grill or something. I mean, come on. I mean, they're saying raised further doubts. Because he had consumed multiple bottles of beer. He consumed multiple bottles of beer. That's not going to change his story. No. Yeah, it hadn't changed. Now, by June 26th, Michelak had located the site and recovered personal belongings that he had left there. Now, the RCMP obtained soil samples from the location, which they tested for radioactivity. The tests were positive. On July 28th, Michelak and the RCMP officers together identified a semicircle on the rock face at the scene 15 feet in diameter where the moss had been somehow removed there were traces of radiation and a fault in the rock across the center of the landing spot no trace of radiation was found around the outer perimeter of the circle or in the moss or grass below the raised portion of the rock the radioactive material found in the rock fault was radium-226, a naturally occurring isotope in wide commercial use and also found in radioactive waste. They concluded that the level of radiation posed no danger to humans in the area. The Department of National Defense identifies the Falcon Lake case as unsolved. Wow. I'd say it, it did have danger to humans in the area because he was sick for a year. Yeah, I mean, any type of radiation to that level. I mean, they're saying that it was the type that's that's basically uh, toxic waste. Yeah, commercial grade radioactivity. Yeah, sure, and it's just like they were saying that uh, when the uh, the nuclear facility in, uh, in Japan melted down that nobody had to worry about, but... It, the radioactivity carried by the winds was starting to reach the west coast of the United States. Don't tell us. It's like, oh, it's always the don't worry until we want you to worry about something scenario. But uh, I have to, I have to agree. I mean, this does have a lot more. I'll say physical evidence than uh, than the Roswell Area Fifty One story. Um, I don't think that anything can really ever top that. I mean, as far as people that, that, that follow us and, and, and are involved in the genre, I mean, I think Roswell will always sit as probably king for most people. Um, but uh, it's a great story. It's a, it's a short one because uh, the fact that his story didn't falter so much over 50 years. So it takes some digging to find some... Uh, you know, some different perspectives, some different people that had interviewed them to get this type of information. But uh, the information's solid. It's a great story. We knew that when we put it together that it might not be as lengthy as our other ones. But that's okay because of the content of the story. And uh, it's just one that people should know. So regardless of, of how long, at least if you hadn't heard of this uh, of this incident before, now you're familiar with it. And uh you can share it with uh, with everybody else. You can say, you know what? There's a story out there that's got uh, a little bit more hard evidence than, than Roswell. People are like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about that Falcon Lake incident. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I had a great time with this with putting this show together. It's always it's always a pleasure being in Studio 1B with my partner in crime, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos, doing what we do. We also we want to thank you guys. Uh, uh, you guys are are, are are the reason that we do this. Um, 
we just ask that you guys continue to share our show. Share it out on your Facebook page. Just share it and you know, so see if anyone's interested. Share with your friends. Share 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 some of your favorite episodes. Let us know what are your some some of your favorite episodes out there. Let us know if there's an episode that we haven't if there's a topic that we haven't covered that you want to. Let us know. There's a lot of topics that we've covered over the years that uh, may not have their actual title in the, in the episode. So if, if you haven't listened to all of them, uh, go back, listen to some of them that you haven't listened to yet. And, uh, and like Fultz said, man, comment on, on the episodes, comment on what you like, comment on everything that you can. Uh, let us know what you're thinking and, and we'll keep doing it. And yeah, whatever platform that you're listening to us on, if you want to give us a, give us a review that helps us do what we do. We are, we are uh, in the depths of uh, planning our tour. We right now are. We've looked at venues uh, to kick off here locally in our area in Pennsylvania. Actually, I have an appointment tomorrow to check out some more venues. So it's definitely an exciting time with Subtle Beast. Uh, we can't wait to get out and do some live shows. We have some cool shows coming up too. Some Halloween stuff for um, October. Yeah, we have some anniversary shows coming up. We won't give too much away, but. Uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, had a good time tonight and uh, had fun as always. Me too, Fultz. So until next time, I'm Fultz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.